Good morning. Please turn in your Bibles this morning to Genesis 39. Genesis 39. Last week we talked about the R-rated story of Judah and Tamar, which seems on the surface to be out of place. I pointed out that this story was necessary to show the change in Judah's character, which we will see in coming chapters. It also showed the sovereignty of God. In spite of Judah's sin, God sovereignly kept Judah's family alive, a family line which led up to King David and culminated in the Messiah. This morning, in chapters 39 to 41, we're going to pick up where chapter 37 left off, with Joseph being sold into slavery. Since the stories in chapter 39 to 41 all fit together, I'm going to cover all three chapters in just one sermon. Let's start by reading chapter 39, verses 1 to 6. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph, so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Let's pray. Lord, please clear away the distractions in our mind this morning and help us to focus on your word. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 2 says, The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. Then in verse 3, The Lord gave him success in everything he did. Then in verse 5, The Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. What seems repetitious to us is there for a purpose. This story is not about Joseph's success. It is about God's faithfulness to his promises to Abraham's descendants to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. In fact, even after Joseph gets thrown into prison, verse 23 at the very end of the chapter says, The Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Even though Joseph is a slave, God is blessing him and blessing Potiphar through him. Now, Potiphar is an important Egyptian official maybe something like the U.S. Attorney General, who is over the Justice Department. The Pharaoh's prison is under Potiphar's authority. And Joseph is the slave placed as the manager of all Potiphar's dealings, whether managing the household or Potiphar's farm. Joseph is apparently kind of like Potiphar's chief of staff. God had blessed Joseph. Although Joseph was a slave, his job was much better than almost any slave could expect and even better than most non-slaves, for that matter. Unfortunately for Joseph, that was not going to last. Verse 6 says, 
Joseph was well-built and handsome. We find out in verses 7 to 12 that Potiphar's wife tried to get Joseph to go to bed with her. According to verse 10, she kept this up day after day, but Joseph kept refusing. One day, she grabbed his cloak, probably an outer garment like a vest or something, but Joseph slipped out of it and ran out of the house. Now, the text doesn't even give her name, but the evil of this woman is seen not only in trying to seduce Joseph, but then by blaming him for the whole thing. Not only that, but in verse 14, she called in the servants and said, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. What is this us business? Potiphar's wife is not one of the servants. She wants to make it look like Joseph's crime was against the whole household staff. She is trying to tear down staff support for Joseph. And she uses racism to do it. Twice in verses 14 and 17, she emphasizes that Joseph is a Hebrew or Jew. But worst of all, she has to know that what she is accusing Joseph of could lead to his death. This unnamed woman is thoroughly despicable. And I suspect that her husband Potiphar also doubts her credibility because normally a slave who did something like this would be executed. Instead, we find Joseph is just put in prison. But even in prison, we find out later in chapter 40, verses 3 and 4, that the captain of the guard, that's Potiphar, gave Joseph responsibility over all the other prisoners. Apparently, he still trusts Joseph. Now, just a couple of observations before we move on. First, there is a striking contrast between this story and the story of Judah that we read last week. Judah actively sought out illegitimate sex. Joseph actively tried to avoid illegitimate sex. And second, there is also a contrast between this story and the story about Shechem and Dinah. In that story, Shechem was the sexual predator. In this story, the woman is the sexual predator. This illustrates how the Me Too movement was so misguided. I'm talking about the movement that said that all women must always be believed. It is not just men who are the sexual predators. Women can be just as predatory as men. Women just go about it differently. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So Joseph ends up in prison, which brings us to the second phase of this story. Let's read chapter 40. Verses 1 to 3. Sometime later, the cupbearer and baker of the king of Egypt offended their master, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was angry with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the same prison where Joseph was confined. Now, we're not told what specific duties these men had. But the chief baker was undoubtedly responsible for preparing all of Pharaoh's food and ensuring that none of it was poisoned. The chief cupbearer may have been a trusted assistant to Pharaoh and would probably have tasted all the food and drink just before Pharaoh consumed it to ensure that none of it was poisoned. Just like Secret Service members are prepared to take a bullet for the president, the chief cupbearer was willing to lay down his life for his Pharaoh. The welfare of the pharaoh was, after all, a national security issue. Now, the text doesn't tell us why pharaoh was angry with them. If I had to guess, 
it would be that an issue came up with the food and both of them would be detained until an investigation could determine what actually happened. According to verse 4, the captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph and he attended them. Now remember, the captain of the guard is none other than Potiphar. He apparently still trusts Joseph because he assigns Joseph to be responsible for the prisoners. Anyway, while in prison, the chief baker and chief cupbearer both have troubling dreams. They are convinced that those dreams mean something, but they have no clue as to what the meaning might be. Verses 6 to 8 say, When Joseph came to them the next morning, he saw that they were dejected. So he asked Pharaoh's officials, who were in the custody with him in his master's house, Why do you look so sad today? We both had dreams, they answered, but there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph. In verse 13, Joseph told him that the interpretation was that in three days Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Then Joseph adds in verse 14 and 15, But when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I've done nothing to deserve being put in this dungeon. When the chief, when the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he told his dream to Joseph too. In verse 19, Joseph told him that the interpretation was that in three days Pharaoh will lift up your head, impale your body on a pole where birds will eat the flesh. The phrase, lift up your head, is a play on words in these verses. When Joseph says that Pharaoh will lift up the chief baker's or cupbearer's head, he means that the chief cupbearer will be restored to his office, as verse 13 makes clear. But when Joseph says Pharaoh will lift up the chief baker's head, it means that the chief baker's head will be cut off. He will then be impaled or hung. I think most translations say they hung him. In that culture, if they really wanted to disgrace or dehumanize someone after execution, they would not allow his body to be buried, but would hang it up for the birds to eat. Exactly how the victim would be hung up is not clear. In this case, however, the chief baker couldn't be hung up by the neck since he no longer had a head. So it seems more likely that the chief baker was impaled on a pole rather than hung up by a rope which is why the NIV translates it as impaled rather than hung. Anyway, verses 21 and 22 show that the dreams came true. The chief baker was executed, while the chief cupbearer was cleared of all wrongdoing and restored to his position. But verse 23 says, The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. Now, did not remember and forgot him are the same thing, of course. The repetition is significant. The forgetting is not just faulty memory. It's hard to forget something that was a matter of life and death. 
In this case, the faulty memory was apparently also lack of gratitude. Now think about Joseph's life so far. He may have been a bit annoying to his brothers, but he had done nothing to deserve being sold into slavery. Then he was the very model of godliness in Potiphar's house, but was still falsely accused and thrown into prison. Then he was a model prisoner and a friend to the chief baker and cupbearer. And yet he was forgotten and left to rot in prison. According to chapter 41, verse 1, Joseph spent two more years in that miserable dungeon. In fact, by comparing Genesis 37-2 and Genesis 41-46, we learn that Joseph was in prison for 13 years. No wonder Joseph would call Egypt the land of my suffering in Genesis 41-52. Although God was with Joseph and was blessing him in some ways, life for Joseph was still miserable. But all of this leads up to the climax of our story this morning in chapter 41. After two more years, Pharaoh was troubled by a strange dream about seven ugly, skinny cows eating up seven healthy, fat cows. He went back to sleep and dreamt of seven thin and blighted ears of grain, swallowing up seven full, plump ears of grain. Pharaoh called for all the magicians and wise men, but none could interpret his dreams. Then the chief cupbearer, finally, after two years, told Pharaoh about Joseph and how he had accurately interpreted the dreams of the baker and himself. So Pharaoh summoned Joseph to appear before him. Even today, when prisoners appear in court, they're dressed in their best clothing, and that's what they did with Joseph. Verse 14 says, Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when, they had shaved, when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. In that culture, men from Canaan, including the Hebrews, wore beards, but Egyptian men were generally clean-shaven. Verse 15 says, And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Now, when Joseph had interpreted the dreams of the cupbearer and baker, he was careful to give the glory to God. So likewise, in verse 16, Joseph tells Pharaoh, I cannot do it, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. After Pharaoh told Joseph the dream, Joseph said in verse 25, God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The story emphasizes that none of the wise men could interpret Pharaoh's dreams, not even Joseph could. It was only God who could reveal the meaning of Pharaoh's dreams. Joseph then interpreted the dream in verses 29 to 32. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout the land of Egypt. But after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. 
I've read that you should never go to your boss with a problem unless you have a solution. Joseph proposes a solution. Select someone to tax one-fifth or 20% of the produce of the land and store it all up in emergency reserves to be used with the famine strikes. Kind of like America's oil reserves. Verses 37 to 40 say, This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and over my people, and my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And in verse 45, Pharaoh gave Joseph an Egyptian name, zephanath paneah and he gave him in marriage to Asenath, the daughter of Padiphera, priest of On. So at only 30 years old, Joseph was now second in charge of all of Egypt. And by the way, historians have discovered other cases in which foreigners were raised to high-level positions in Egypt, so this story is not as far-fetched as some critics might like to believe. Anyway, Joseph set up storage facilities in each city and was so successful and the abundance of grain was so great, they even stopped measuring it. In the meantime, according to verses 50 to 52, Joseph and his wife Potiphera found time to have two kids, Manasseh and Ephraim. The name Manasseh may come from the Hebrew word for forget. In verse 51, Joseph said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name Ephraim sounds like the Hebrew word for twice fruitful. In verse 52, Joseph said, For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Hardship and affliction. Let's not read over that too quickly. Life had been terribly hard for Joseph. But God blessed Joseph and used him powerfully in the midst of all of his hardship and affliction. The seven years of famine began, and not just in Egypt. Verses 56 and 57 say, So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. Now, don't read that too literally. That's not saying there was famine even in the Americas or China. All the earth to them was primarily the Mediterranean and Middle Eastern world. The point was that Egypt was the only country with grain, so everyone came to Egypt for grain, even Joseph's family, as we will see next week. The story provides the background for explaining how Israel ended up being enslaved in Egypt for 40 years, 400 years. It will also show how even though Joseph's brothers intended evil towards Joseph, God used it for good, for saving the Hebrews, Egypt, and other nations from famine. It also shows how, in spite of human evil, God was carrying out his covenant promise to Abraham to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. God not only blessed Joseph, he also blessed Potiphar, Pharaoh, and all of Egypt as well. 
So what lessons can we take home from this story? Three closely related observations. First, I think one of the main things is the topic that we saw last week and keeps coming up over and over again. That is how God is able to take human evil and turn it out for good. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that all things work together for good, for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. Even when our life is in the toilet and everything around us is crumbling, for those who love God, we can be assured that God has not forgotten us and can turn evil into ultimate good. Second, although God had blessed Joseph in some ways, overall Joseph's life had been pretty miserable. He was hated and rejected by his brothers and sold into slavery. And although Joseph did everything right as a slave in his master's house, he still gets falsely accused and ends up in prison. And then after showing kindness to the cupbearer by interpreting his dream, the cupbearer wouldn't even mention him to Pharaoh. Joseph spent 13 years in that miserable pit where the summer temperatures in Egypt can average as high as 104 degrees, but it gets as high as 120. With no breeze, no fresh air, the heat and smell in Joseph's dungeon were undoubtedly overwhelming. There were also no TVs, no weight rooms, no books or magazines. The food was probably minimal. If they had beds at all, they were certainly not Sealypostropedic. But through all of this hardship, affliction, and suffering, Joseph's faith remained intact and strong. I've said numerous times before that my heroes in the faith are not the Billy or Franklin Grahams, as much as I respect them. My heroes are those who have suffered terribly and have emerged with their faith still strong and vibrant. Some of you here are on my list of heroes. Finally, although Hebrews 12 says, the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives, it's important to note that just because the bottom falls out of your life does not necessarily mean God is mad at you or is chastising you. Joseph did everything right, and yet he still suffered terribly. Paul was faithful to God, and yet he still suffered terribly. Jesus did absolutely everything right, and look what he suffered. My point is that you, if you have turned your heart and life over to Christ, you should never doubt that God is with you and loves you, even in the midst of your hardship, affliction, and suffering. Let's pray. Father, many of your people here this morning are facing varying degrees of hardship, affliction, and suffering. I pray that you would draw them near to yourself and encourage them and ensure them of your love. And Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who has not experienced your love, who has not turned their heart and life over to you as their Lord and King, convict them of their sin and draw them to yourself. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.